So this is week two of our new teaching series on the fruit of the Spirit. Um, Pastor Mike kicked off the series last week, teaching an introductory overview of the fruit of the Spirit passage, and, um, and he talked about the central theme of the Spirit, which is when we lead a life that is led by the Spirit and in step with the Spirit, he produces in us character traits that the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. And these character traits are listed in the biblical book of Galatians. And Galatians is a letter written by Paul to a group of churches that he had founded a few years before he wrote this letter. Um, It's in a region of what is now Turkey. At that time, it was called Galatia. And uh, I encourage you all, since we're going to be studying this section of Galatians for the next couple of months, um, take some time, read the whole book of Galatians. Um, It's... We say it's a book of Galatians. It's really a letter. It's very uh, easy to read. It's only a few pages in your Bible. In fact, I timed myself earlier this week to see how long it would take to read the whole book of Galatians, just under 17 minutes. So you can do it. I encourage you to do it. One sitting, sit down, open up your Bible, read the whole book of Galatians. And when you do that, it will really help you to understand how this whole uh, teaching about the fruit of the Spirit fits into the larger context of the book and what it's really all about. And you'll get more from this whole series over the next couple of months if you read Galatians this afternoon or tomorrow. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, But it's in chapter 5 that Paul gives us the list. It says there, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, and forbearance is a little different translation we're used to. We're used to seeing patience there, right? But the uh, NIV translators in this latest version here have decided that they want to uh, translate it as forbearance. It'll be three or four weeks when we get to that one, and hopefully we'll understand what they were thinking once we uh, study forbearance or patience. But anyway, it's love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So this is what the Holy Spirit's presence produces in the life of the Christian. Um, These are more than just behaviors or attitudes. They are character traits. And they are the character traits of God himself. All of these describe the character of God. God is loving. God is joyful. God is peaceful. God is patient. God is kind. God is good and God is faithful, and God is gentle, and God is self-controlled. And what the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives produces in us is godly character. Godly character. Now, there's a key area that I want to talk about for a few minutes that as we think about these fruits, we need to keep balanced. We need to have some balance here. And it has to do with the key question of just how these fruits are produced. How does our character change? The question is, is it up to us to put in the effort to make the change, or is this something that God does for us through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives? Now, there are some who have looked at this passage and they've said, look, these are the fruits of the Spirit, not the fruits of our efforts. And therefore, uh, you know, it's it's what God is producing, and that's true. The Bible does not teach that we just need to try harder and make ourselves better in order to be better people through the strength of our own ability. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, Jesus uh, taught in a passage that uses a very similar metaphor to the one here in Galatians. Here's what Jesus said. This is uh, from the Gospel of John. 
He said, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We are totally dependent on God to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Our own efforts will not result in the life change that's described in Galatians chapter 5. But on the other hand, the Bible does not teach that we are passive observers of the process. It's not as if the simple passage of time as a Christian uh, automatically results in growth toward maturity as God creates the fruits in our lives. Um, One of the places this is taught clearly is in Philippians chapter 3, where it's discussing the process of becoming like Christ, and it says this. It says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. This is a description of someone putting all their effort into growing in spiritual maturity and taking on the character of Jesus. So, is it our own effort, or is it the work of God in our lives? Well, the Bible teaches that both are true. When we understand these things properly, we see that they are complementary sides of the whole truth. We've looked at these two passages, one where Jesus emphasizes our dependence on him, without him we can do nothing, and the Philippians passage emphasizes our own effort, but there are so many passages also that that contain both truths together. We're going to look at a couple of those right now. First in Romans chapter 12, it says there, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, be transformed, that's what is known as a passive imperative. That is, it doesn't say transform yourself. It says be transformed. God is the one who is transforming us, and yet it is very much an instruction. This is a command, be transformed. So it is that we must be transformed as our mind is renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Another place where this uh, combination of God's work in us and our own effort is seen is is in the book of Philippians. Uh, Just a few verses back from that other section we read from Philippians, it says this. It says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, just to be clear, work out your salvation doesn't mean work for your salvation. This means work out the implications of your salvation. Work out the the, the ways that this is going to affect your life. Our salvation is a total gift from God, not dependent on our own effort, but working out the implications of our salvation in our lives requires us to continue to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that phrase, fear and trembling, that's serious business, right? We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is the idea of straining toward what is ahead and pressing on toward the goal. But the very next sentence says that it is God who works in you to will and to act rightly. 
God is at work in your life. Therefore, you had better not resist, but rather cooperate with him as he transforms you to reflect his character. One more passage that illustrates this balance between our work and God's work. This is from the book of Ephesians. It says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see that, that the putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self, those are commands for us to change our character. Don't be like you used to be. Change and become new. And yet, sandwiched between these two commands is another one of those passive imperatives. Be made new. Who's making us new? It doesn't say make yourself new. God will make you new, but yet it's an instruction for us to cooperate with that process. We are to strive to get rid of the sinful patterns of our old lives and to put on the new self, which is created to be like God. But at the same time, we are being made new, not making ourselves new. So the fruit of the Spirit is something that the Spirit produces in our lives, and yet at the same time, our passage in Galatians is telling us that we need to walk by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, as God works in us, we must strive to cooperate with the Spirit's work in our lives. And that's when we find that our character is transformed to reflect the character of the fruit of the Spirit. And that's the balance we need to hold as we think about the fruit of the Spirit and about the spiritual growth in general. It is God who is working in us, and we are totally dependent on Him to grow in godliness. But at the same time, we will not grow unless we keep in step with the Spirit and strive with fear and trembling to work out our salvation and strain towards the goal. But then what does it really mean to keep in step with the Spirit and to cooperate with His work in our lives on a practical level? How do we do that? And I've just got a couple of things here. Uh, essentially, it comes down to two things. Listen to what the Spirit is telling you and do what He is telling you. So how do we listen to the Holy Spirit in our lives? Um, first off, we need to decide that we want to hear from Him and start listening for His voice. You won't hear much from him if you aren't seeking to hear from him. And one of the ways that, um, that we are uh, in reinforcing that decision in our lives over the course of this series is we, uh, as Mike introduced last week, this, this prayer that we are encouraging everyone to pray that uh, originates from John Stott, uh, a Bible teacher. And, um, and we have created these little cards so that you can have one of these and uh, I think they're stapled to most of the bulletins. You've got a little card like this. Um, if it's not stapled to your bulletin, there's a big stack of them back in the back. Um, there's, most of the cards are really small. They're like the size of a business card. Those are nine-point font, which I thought, well, some people might not want nine-point font. So I made these little larger ones. They're about twice the size. Um, you can get a bigger one if you'd prefer a bigger one. But this prayer is an invitation for the Holy Spirit to be working in your life. And when you're praying this prayer... Um, this will help you to remember to listen to the Holy Spirit. As you pray, Holy Spirit, speak to me. Fill me with your fruit. Then you'll start looking for what's the Holy Spirit saying to me. So, recommend that. So, we need to be looking to hear from the Spirit. So, where do we look? And how do we listen? 
Um, the top way, the number one way that the Holy Spirit communicates with us is through the Bible. So pick up your Bible, read it, and God will speak to you through it, and he will guide you in your life. Um, as he speaks to you, and you obey the things that you are learning, you will find that the fruit of the Spirit is growing in your life. Another key way that the Holy Spirit speaks to us is through that small inner voice inside of us. Uh, sometimes that voice is our own thoughts or our own conscience, and sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks to us and shows us the right thing to do. And sometimes it's pretty hard to tell whether what we're hearing from is ourselves or God, but sometimes we're really sure that, no, I'm, God is, is guiding me in this and showing me this. And when we hear from God, we need to follow his lead and he will guide us into the fruitful life. So with those things in mind, that balance and that needing to follow and keep in step with the Spirit, let's, let's spend the rest of our time looking at the first of the fruits, which is love. Uh, it doesn't seem, as we read this uh, list of the fruits of the Spirit, that the order of the fruits has any meaning. They're just uh, listed off there, uh, not in order of importance or anything, except for this first one. This first one is, is, is different. It could be a coincidence that love is the first fruit listed here, except that love is given the place of prominence and priority as the greatest virtue all throughout the scriptures. And so I think the fact that it's listed first here is also to show that priority of love. Colossians chapter 3 is one of uh, the places where we see this. There's a similar list there of godly character traits. Um, it lists uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness. And then it says, Over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love is the capstone over all the fruits and character traits that we are producing in our lives. It's the overarching virtue that motivates and enables all the others. Then, of course, there's a famous verse from 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, the great, uh, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But the passage shows that the priority of love most clearly, it, it's from a conversation that Jesus had with another Bible teacher about what was the most important command in the Bible. So these two guys talking about what's most important. And it says, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Now here at Clearwater Church, we, uh, because this is the key to the whole of Scripture, we use this passage as our standard phrase for uh, the end of our services. We send you out to love the Lord and love, love your neighbor. And, and that's it. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the core of the whole thing. But here's the, here's the thing, though, with love. Do you remember last week, uh, Pastor Mike had some people come up front and we played that game, Bean Boozled? Uh, it, in the game, you, you, you choose a jelly bean, um, is the, the, the choice made in the game, but it's impossible to tell when you're choosing whether you're going to get a toasted coconut jelly bean or a spoiled milk jelly bean. Or maybe it could be either a tutti-frutti jelly bean or stinky socks. 
And they look absolutely identical. They don't smell like anything. You cannot tell which one you're getting. And we use that game to illustrate how people want good things in their lives, right? They want to pick a good jelly bean. But a lot of times, we just don't know how to get it. We're often mistaken in our choice. We pick one thinking, this will lead to something good. And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. A lot of times, we end up with something bad. Um, and that's especially true about love, right? Too often, our attempts to experience love end up fitting instead the old country song, which says, playing a fool's game, hoping to win, and telling those sweet lies and losing again. I was, who knows it, looking for love in all the wrong places. And that is, uh, that's our experience so often. We aren't even just looking in the wrong places. We don't even know what we're looking for. Um, there's a lot of question marks about love and a lot of wrong ideas that people have about what love even is. But God has not left us without information about this most important virtue. There's a lot of good teaching in the Bible about what love is and where to find it. And one of the places, of course, uh, to look for information about love is that great teaching about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. But of course, we just finished a big series on 1 Corinthians, and we taught on 1 Corinthians 13 just a few weeks ago. So if you want to hear about 1 Corinthians 13 and all the good things about love in there, you can pull up it on our app, the uh, old sermons, or go to our website, and you can hear that. So, no 1 Corinthians 13 today, but we are going instead to a different place in the Bible that focuses on uh, the idea of love and defining love for us, and that's the book of 1 John in chapters 3 and 4. 1 John chapters 3 and 4. And here's what it says there. It says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The great example of love, the very definition of love, is what God did for us uh, in becoming human and entering into our world. Notice that God did this, showing his love for us despite our lack of love for him. It says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God did not send Jesus to save us in response to our love for him or our seeking after him or anything else that we did. In another place, the Bible puts it like this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were rebelling against God, he loved us. God loved us despite the fact that we are not easy to love. So, God came down into the world as a man. That's amazing. But the reason that Jesus came uh, is what really makes this the ultimate act of love. John describes the reason in both verses 9 and 10 and also a few verses later in uh, verse 14 of First uh, John 4. And here's what it says. It says, God sent his son, first in verse 9, that we might live through him. In verse 10, it says he was sent as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then in verse 14, he was sent to be the savior of the world. 
So what does it mean to say that Jesus came so that we might live through him? Well, it means that without him we would die. The Bible teaches that because of our sinful rebellion against God, we are all headed for eternal death. But Jesus came so that we might escape from eternal death and have eternal life through him instead. Then verse 10 tells us how Jesus coming gives us life. It says that he was sent as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, it was as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. The penalty that we deserved for our sinful actions was paid by Jesus as he sacrificed himself for us. And that's why in verse 14, he's called the Savior of the world. What did he save us from? He saved us from eternal death by sacrificing himself for us, atoning for our sins. And because our sins have been dealt with, it is now possible for him to give us eternal life. This is love. God came to earth as a man to be our savior by sacrificing himself on a cross for our sins so that through that sacrifice we can live. That's what love is. Now, of course, the question is, how does that help us to know how we are supposed to love each other? If this is love, then how are we supposed to show love to the people around us? Well, on the one hand, we cannot do exactly what God did, right? Jesus coming down from heaven to earth and and dying for our sins, that was a unique thing, and it was way beyond anything we could do anyway. Um, But we can take principles of love from this and, and, and see from this ultimate example of love what some of the more general truths about love are. So first, uh, we see that love is not just a good feeling. Love takes action. John does not say, this is love. God had warm, fuzzy feelings for us. If love does not lead to action, is it really love? It's not the kind of love that the Bible is talking about here. Another thing that is clear is that love seeks the good of the other person. Uh, God's love expressed itself in a tremendous act of sacrifice on his part for our benefit. We needed God. God did not need us. God's love met our greatest need and at a great cost to himself. Jesus left heaven to come to earth and then died a horrible, humiliating death in order to meet our need. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus' sacrifice. It says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If we are to love like God loves, our acts of love must be for the good of the other person, and it must cost us something. Now, one of the literary features of 1 John is that it's cyclical. It goes in cycles. What that means is that John writes about a topic, and then he goes on and talks about something else, and then he comes back to that topic he was talking about earlier and discusses it further. And that's what's happening here in uh, in. Chapter 4 of 1 John, 
he's talking about the same thing he's already talked about in chapter 3. And so we're going to go back to chapter 3 now and see uh, what he said about the same topic uh, back there in chapter 3, verses uh, 16 to 18. And there, in addition to the ultimate example of God coming to save us, in chapter 3, John gives us another key example of what it means to love. So let's look at that section. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then he gets to the more uh, easy or or more relatable uh, illustration. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So here we see again the two principles that we discovered in chapter 4. Real love takes action. It's not just words. It's not just feelings. Real love takes action. And real love seeks the good of others above our own. And John's example of the kind of action that love's motivated, kind of action that love motivates is helping people who have physical needs. And John is very direct here. He puts it very strongly. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? In other words, if we have money and we see someone in need and we don't do anything to help, That is proof that we know nothing about the love of God. Love must act. And if we're going to love, it is not enough to say that we love people or even to feel that we love people. We need to actually do something to show love to them. We have to seek their good and meet their need even when, or especially when, it costs us something. And then, of course, the big question is, who are we expected to love like this? Who, who is included in this, uh, in this thing? Is it just everyone? And Jesus answered that question for us in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Right In the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about who are we supposed to love. Here's what he says. This is from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? You see, Jesus says, don't just love your neighbor. But of course, loving your neighbor, that's, that's, a, that's a biblical phrase, right? But, uh, but many times the Bible tells us actually, love your neighbor. But the question then becomes, who is your neighbor? And so... Um, So the Gospel of Luke tells us this story about this conversation Jesus has with another Jewish expert about the meaning of the phrase, love your neighbor. And we looked at that a few minutes ago, right? They they talked about first, what's the greatest commandment? Oh, it's love God, love your neighbor. And then uh, Luke tells us this. 
After the two guys both agreed, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the core of it all. That's the most important thing. Then Luke says, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. You see, so this guy, he wanted to somehow show that, that he was already doing it. He was already good enough. He was already loving his neighbor. And so he says, let's, let's clarify here who my neighbor is that I need to love. And Jesus did what he often did, and he answered the question with a story. And it's the famous story of the Good Samaritan. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, of course, there, there's, a, there's a man who's beaten by robbers, left for dead on the side of the road. And then two religious leaders come walking by, and they, neither one of them helped the guy. They just passed by. And then the Bible says, uh, then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, in order to really understand this, this story and understand this answer that Jesus is giving to the question uh, uh, about who is your neighbor, we need to understand a little bit about what a Samaritan was to the Jewish audience that Jesus was talking to. Because Jews and Samaritans were different racial groups living nearby one another, and they did not get along. They were not on friendly terms. A modern parallel might be the way most Americans feel about uh, radical Muslims. They don't like us, we don't like them. But in Jesus' story about who we are supposed to love, he has the priest, who should have been the good guy, in the role of the unloving jerk who walks by without helping. And he puts the Samaritan in the role of the loving hero of the story. Now, Jesus could have made his point by giving an example of a good Jew who showed love even to a bad Samaritan. Or in our modern example, it could have been a story of a good American who showed love to a radical Muslim. But Jesus flips it. He tells the story the other way. In his story, it's a radical Muslim who's showing love to a needy American. Why would Jesus tell it like that? I think it was for shock value. <laughs> Jesus wanted his audience to say, what? You're telling me that my neighbor includes Samaritans? And not only that, but you're setting the story so that the Samaritan is the hero? He's the loving guy in this story? Are you kidding me? And that's Jesus' answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? What's the answer the story gives? The people you are supposed to love are not only the people who are like you, those who share your political views or share your religion or share your race or share your sexual orientation. Christians are told to love people who don't love us. Jesus tells us even to love our enemies. So, who is it okay not to love? How about the person who gossips about you? Or the person who cheated you in a business deal? Are we supposed to love them? How about the gay rights campaigners? Or the radical Muslims? Or convicted violent felons? 
Well, the teaching of the Bible is clear. We are to love even our enemies. Not that all the people in those groups I just mentioned are necessarily our enemies, but they are examples of the kind of people that sometimes we find hard to love. So, here are the three great principles of love that we have seen in this section of the Bible we've been looking at here. First of all, love takes action. It's not love just to say you love somebody or to feel nice. Love must act. Secondly, love seeks the good of the other person above our own good. A truly loving action is one that costs us something and benefits the other person. And thirdly, true love loves even those that it is hard to love. And that's the kind of love that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in our lives. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And as we live our lives keeping in step with the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, this is the kind of love that will come more and more to characterize our lives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is a great challenge to love like this. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the Holy Spirit's movement in our lives as he steers us toward love. I pray that we would not try to do it on our own, but that we would work through the Holy Spirit's power in us to to be more loving. Pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.